Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Next Gen Dems. This is going to be a brand new podcast brought to you by yours truly, Curtis Wilde. And uh, we're going to be having fun with this podcast. We're going to try to make democracy fun again, as I've been saying every chance that I get. And we're taking it on the road. This is a mobile podcast. We are taking it out to local businesses. So if you know of a business that would be a great host for Next Gen Dems, please get a hold of me. Send me a message on the page, which may be like somewhere up here mm -hmm. if you're watching on the Facebooks. <laughs> um, go ahead and message us, and we will get back to you. But uh, today we are at the wonderful Rendezvous Cafe here in lovely O'Fallon. And Missouri. wine bar. Cafe and wine bar. Rendezvous Cafe and wine bar. That's at 217 South Main Street here in O'Fallon, Missouri. Today we are here with a very special guest, a fellow DNC member, a fellow uh, political uh, what would you call it? Involved individual. Yes. We we're both digging in and trying to make some changes in the Missouri Democratic Party and in the national uh, political scene. So I would like to introduce to you Winston Apple. Hello. Hello, Winston. <laughs> honored to be here. I am honored to have you. Today you went and spoke with MOPAG. Can you tell us a little bit about that? The Missouri Progressive Action Group. And uh, we had a full house and uh, a really good group. And... Uh, a lot of people who are hoping that we do big things in 2018, and my presentation was my ideas about how we could do big things in 2018, and uh, seemed to go very well. Well, that's exactly what we're here to talk about, Winston. We are here to talk about uh, the great things that you've got coming up. You've got mm -hmm. some ballot initiatives, mm -hmm. but you also have an announcement, and I'd like to try <laughs> to get you to make that on the show. Oh, my goodness. Because there is a, a very big announcement that... Mr. Winston Apple, who I met, uh, so some people will divert, we'll get to that in just mm -hmm. a second, but I met uh, kind of on the campaign trail, uh, we, we were coming in on the Bernie wave, everybody got involved, everybody got uh, energized and, mm -hmm. and decided to mobilize, mm -hmm. and when I was running for state representative, and uh, you were running for lieutenant governor, is when we met. And we were both uh, running uh, along with Bernie. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. So tell us a little bit about uh, your lieutenant governor run. How did it go? And what were some things that you learned? Well, I learned the, the best thing that I learned as a retired civics and economics teacher, first of all, that I'm not retired anymore, although I don't get paid. <laughs> it, turns out uh, a job, it? it does, but it is absolutely the best form of teaching. I, I had no idea it would be so deeply, uh, truly enjoyable. And rewarding. Uh, very rewarding. Yeah. Um, Even in defeat. <laughs> yes. Well, you know, uh, winning's better than losing, yeah. but uh, it's not everything. And uh, we've got a ways to go, and we need to get there as fast as we can. But uh, the opportunity to share ideas and... Uh, whatever knowledge I've accumulated in a lifetime of reading about politics and teaching government and economics, and now uh, street-level retail down in the trenches politics. And certainly it gets very ugly at times, and it's very discouraging how much infighting is still going on. Uh, but at the same time, there are so many people now 
who are looking around saying, how did we get in this mess and how do we get out? And what have we done? Exactly. What have we done to deserve such a fate? And uh, I'm uh, just, I hope, confident rather than cocky. Uh, I'm confident that I have some of the answers and the opportunity to share those answers and engage in great discussions two, three, four times a day. Uh, compared to teaching high school, uh, there's no compulsory attendance, no one's sleeping in class. Uh, I don't have to uh, give homework or test or grade them. Exactly. And, and the discussions are lively and enjoyable. And there's a Japanese uh, proverb, to teach is to, is to learn. And I've learned so much the last, it's almost four years now since I got active in politics. I, I've learned so much and had opportunities to share what I've learned. And I feel truly blessed and very, very excited about this upcoming year. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think there's going to be a blue wave coming. I think people feel it. They see it. Mm -hmm. And they're absolutely ready for it because um, uh, the red scare has scared everybody. <laughs> uh -huh. We are uh, completely aware of what they have tried to do. Mm -hmm. The fact that they have completely betrayed the trust of the American people. Yeah. Um, and the American people see it, too. Regardless of, of what media they watch, they've got to be able to see between the lines and see that bad things are happening to good people uh, and see that people are not fighting for people who cannot fight for themselves mm -hmm. uh, when they're in a position where they should be fighting for people who cannot fight for themselves. Right. So I think that good things are going to happen in 2018. Big things are going to happen in 2018. And that's what this show is about. It's about trying to... Uh, the mainstream media, the, the corporate media, establishment media is not going to give the voice and the microphone to these progressive issues. Are you talking about the fake news people? Oh, all those fake news people. <laughs> they, they have many awards, but they're just not going to do the job that um, we need them to do as the American people. We need them to uh, spread the news about progressive values that, that like universal health care, that 60% of all Americans... Uh, across the board, uh, are backing. So mm -hmm. um, we definitely need to to form our own media and create our own uh, microphone and megaphone to get that out. And that's what this episode is about. That's what this podcast is about. And just to remind the folks at home, uh, we are doing this live and we are doing this. Uh, it will be released recorded, but we are doing this live in Rendezvous on a Saturday night so that ambient noise you see in the back, or you hear in the background, is exactly what's happening. This place is open, and it's hopping. They've got uh, pasta night going on. They've got live music in the other room. So if you hear some of that background noise, I apologize, but I think it's part of the charm of the show. This is my third time here, and I, I just love this room. I love this space. Yeah, yeah. It's just really nice. I like the brick walls. I like the art on the, the walls. If you get a chance, come down to Rendezvous Cafe and Wine Bar. Check it out. Uh, again, that's 217 South Main Street, no Fallon. Uh, and I want to make sure that everybody gets an opportunity to come down here and, and really feel the ambiance of the room. And I notice the traffic going by out here. Some people are moving to the right and some people are moving to the left. But it seems to me like more people are moving to the left than to the right. I'm just kind of keeping track as I see the cars go by. Could be a blue, the blue wave you were talking I, I about. I think it could definitely <laughs> be. Um, that was definitely a political <laughs> joke. It took me a minute. But uh, more people are definitely moving to the left.
left than the right. Some people want to talk about moderates uh, versus progressives and conservatives. But the fact is, is that most people would maybe call themselves a moderate. But once you explain progressive values to them, explain progressive issues to them, and most importantly, how progressive things can get done and get done quickly, they start to kind of come across and, and really appreciate the message that's coming out. I have long considered myself a radical moderate. A radical moderate. I like it. These days, being moderate is very radical. <laughs> I would say these days, um, being progressive seems to be what's being painted as the radicals. Well, I think, it, I, and I think very falsely, because if you look at polls, if you, particularly I was very fond of a poll that came out in January of 2015. That was done for the Progressive Institute. It was done by uh, a group that uh, was asking progressive questions. But it just showed, and they, of course, polled independents and Republicans as well as Democrats, and everything in Bernie's platform, everything in the Democratic Party platform, is polling at 60 to 70, 75 percent approval. Yeah. Now, that's not left or right. That's the will of the people. That's the will of the people. But once you, you put a label on it, like it's Bernie's platform mm -hmm. or it's a progressive platform, mm -hmm. then people tend to shy away from it. But if you leave those labels away from it and you just tell them what's going on, how it's going to get done, why it needs to get done, mm -hmm. um, most people see that, that we need health care. We need education. Mm -hmm. We need our tax dollars to give us a return on investment that they're not giving us right now. I mean, what are they doing? Uh, giving it most, mostly to the military, which I absolutely support the military. And tax-averse billionaires and corporations. Uh, yeah, that, that's, I mean, All it's not right new, <laughs> but they really went hard on it. They really went into deep field with this, this latest uh, non-job creator and non-tax cut for the middle class bill that, uh, that Trump has. Well, the Republicans are taking full advantage of the opportunity, well, not quite full advantage. They couldn't repeal the Affordable Care Act outright. But they're certainly taking as much advantage as possible of their opportunity, controlling both houses of Congress and the White House, although I'm not sure anybody controls the White House at this point. Uh, <laughs> I think the person who's supposed to control the White House can't even control themselves. Right. Uh, so that's a very big issue as far as I'm concerned. But, you know, if you look at the Democratic Party platform, it is not perfect, but it's very, very good. And the problem is that there are too many Democrats who don't support the platform, who are, hold, are holding seats in Congress mm -hmm. or key seats in some of the state legislatures. We can't seem to get anything from our platform passed. The Republicans got... Uh, came within one senator of repealing the Affordable Care Act that would have kicked 20-some million people off of health insurance. They were that unified, and they were unified enough to pass, without a single dissenting vote in the Senate, uh, a horrible tax bill that gives more money to, to the people who have more than they know what to do with now and gives a little bit of a tax cut to the rest of us for... I think it's 10 years, and then it goes away. Yeah. And, oh, we, you know, we can change that. 
Well, we can change it all. We can change it all next year if we're in charge. And really isn't given much of a tax cut to the middle class, even for no, those 10 no, years. It's very small. Um, what is it? If you make less than $12,000 a year, you're actually going to be a little bit paying. More, a little bit more. Is it 15? Something like that. Um, you're actually going to be, within 10 years, you will be paying um, 100% plus $70 um, of your entire income. Hmm. Um, look up the, the scale. Hmm. It's uh, by like the eight or ten year mark. If you are on the bottom rung, hmm. then you are going to be paying not only 100% of your entire income, but you're going to have to come up with another $70. <laughs> and they're trying to play that off like it's not, um, hmm. you know, debt slavery. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's no other real way to look at it, right? It's odd to me that the party that abolished slavery is now seems to be very fond of wage slaves. Yeah, yeah. Well, not only wage slaves, you look at our criminal justice system, mm-hmm. and, and we have incarcerated slaves. Mm-hmm. We have people who, who uh, went to jail for nonviolent crimes, are now in prison. Um, not only are they in prison for these nonviolent crimes, but they have to work. They're, they're, uh, many of them are on now, work Is this the fun part of the, of the current political scene that you're talking about? <laughs> well, I think just doing a podcast here is kind of the I, fun part. I hope but so. We need to, to make it uh, more accessible right. uh, for people to get involved and, and make them realize that there are some really important, um, um, tough issues that we have to face. But if we don't get together and... Uh, I mean, when my family gets together, your family gets together, mm-hmm. we have a good time, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we need the family to get together, and we need the family to make changes right. um, to the, the entire political scene. Yeah. So, yeah, that's going to be fun. Well, Making those changes, once it really clicks with people that we can, and that regular people like me and like Winston can run for office, and like people out there watching today, um, when they realize that they can step up and take control of their own future... That's when it gets fun. I'll tell you, the, the potential for fun to me lies in the fact that our greatest blessing as Americans is that we can change our political system without bullets. We can do it with ballots. Yeah. We don't have to get angry. We don't have to get hateful. We don't have to get mean, nasty, or mad. We can uh, have, you were talking about marches and rallies before mm-hmm. we uh, started recording. And uh, we can march and we can rally and we can play music and sing and dance and uh, peace, love, and understanding all around. Mm -hmm. And then on November 6th of this year, we show up and we vote the bad guys out of office and good people in. And we all live happily ever after. We march to the ballots. Mm -hmm. We march to our election, Mm -hmm. our polling places. Um, And I think that when people realize that they have the power to do that again, right now there's a lot of disenfranchisement going on. Mm -hmm. And when you're able to get a population that believes that their voice doesn't matter, then only the people who vote's voice actually does matter. Mm-hmm. Um, so you have to get out and vote to make sure that your voice matters. And even if you lose a few times, it's designed that way. It's called gerrymandering. They redrew the districts to, to make it to where one party is in control of everything, regardless of if the other party gets more votes. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and tell us a little bit more about gerrymandering and what you're doing. Well, I, I think gerrymandering is a serious problem, but it's not the main problem. Mm-hmm. Um, There is a software engineer in Massachusetts by the name of Brian Olson who came up with an algorithm and a computer program, and he's taken all 50 states, I think, now. I know he's had Missouri done for some time, 
and he redraws the lines with this computer program with no input whatsoever about the partisan makeup of the population. Mm -hmm. What you find in a lot of states, and Missouri is one of them, it wouldn't alter, I mean, even if we got rid of gerrymandering completely, the Democrats are clustered in Kansas City and St. Louis and a few college towns. Mm-hmm. With totally nonpartisan boundaries, we'd still be sending six Republicans to the U.S. House and two Democrats, most likely, even though Missouri is a purple state. We're about as purple as you can get. Most statewide elections are fairly close. Even last year, as much as well as the Republicans did in Missouri, Jason Kander came within two percentage points mm-hmm. of winning the Senate seat. Mm-hmm. So, And Coster um, as well. Coster was a little well. farther back. Right. Um, but uh, it is still a problem, and gerrymandering makes it worse. It has more of an impact on the, the House. This is why the ballot proposal that I've been promoting and uh, government by the, through government by the people for proportional representation That changes everything. If you look at the problems with our electoral system, you've got distortions in partisan distribution, along with gerrymandering, that leads to a minority party having a majority of the seats. Mm -hmm. We all know that Hillary Clinton got 3 million or nearly 3 million more popular votes than Trump. Although, of course, that was just all the illegal immigrants voting for her. (laughs) If you hear Trump talk. Yes. Uh, And, of course, in 2000, we had the Bush-Gore race. I'd just like to say that's fake news. Yes, where where Gore got more votes. What a lot of people don't realize is that in three of the last four congressional elections, Democrats nationwide have gotten significantly more votes total than Republican candidates, and yet the Republicans have been in charge since 2010. And that's why I think gerrymandering is a huge deal, because that oh, never would have happened. Oh, it is. Absolutely. No, that absolutely. never would have happened otherwise. But, you know, it does cut both ways. Uh, in Massachusetts, 40% of the electorate is Republican. They have nine seats in the U.S. House, all held by Democrats. So this cuts both ways. Now, on balance, it favors the Republicans. Mm-hmm. And, and But I can tell you... Proportional representation ends gerrymandering. Tell us a little bit more about proportional representation, and that's the ballot initiative. You introduced seven. Yes, uh, and we've narrowed it down to this one. And you're going to put all your horses in this. uh, All the eggs are going in this basket. Got it, got it. Uh, Proportional representation is in place in 94 countries around the world. Mm -hmm. Eighty-five of those countries have the same sort of ordered party list system that we're proposing here in Missouri. Basically, in the primary election in Missouri, we would use our eight congressional districts, and within each of those districts, voters would elect 10 members of the Missouri House. If you're doing the math, you might notice that adds up to 80. There's 163 members right now, so it pretty much cuts it a little more than in half, saving the taxpayers of Missouri $6.9 million a year, estimated. Well, explain in layman's terms, pretend I'm not involved in politics and we're talking to an audience that may not be either. Um, explain to us exactly what proportional representation is, how it works, how it's different maybe from ranked choice voting. Mm-hmm. Um, the words are right in the title, proportional representation. 
in a legislature, Congress or a state legislature, where you, the voters are supposed to be represented, each party gets the same per percentage or proportion of the seats as their percentage of the total vote. So if a party gets 50% of the vote, they get half the seats. If a party gets 10% of the votes, they get 10% of the seats. And again, in the primary, you vote within your party and you put a list together. The candidate that gets the most votes is listed first, the second most listed seven. In Missouri, each, each party would have a list of ten candidates then after the primary in order of total votes received. So then if the Democrats get in the general election, you vote for the party and its list rather than individual candidates. So if the Democrats get 50% of the vote, they get 50% of the seats. If the Green Party gets 10% of the votes, they get one seat in each of the, the legislative areas where they get 10%. The basic idea is that voters, like-minded voters, are given equal representation, representation that's proportional to their percentage of the electorate. Uh, the big differences are this. There's no gerrymandering. Uh, you have more women and minorities. And again, none of this is theoretical. There's 94 countries, that, have, and some of them have had this for over 100 years. So you can observe the differences. Uh, what are some of the larger countries of that 94? Oh, France, Germany. Okay. The only major countries that don't have it are the United States, Canada, and Great Britain. Hmm. Uh, and... It is more genuinely democratic. The thing I like uh, best about it is that when you're l focusing on voting for a party rather than individual candidates in the general election, you're talking about platforms and issues instead of who didn't pay their taxes or who cheated on their wife or who's been divorced three times or whatever. Uh, you're, you're looking at what are the, what the, how are the parties identifying the critical issues we face, and what does each party propose to do about it? And what is keeping each uh, candidate beholden to their party platform? Or well, if you the, elect the platforms and issues that the people really voted on and not the people. If you vote for a party in the general election based on its platform and they win a majority of the seats, and then they don't implement their platform. They got to go. You're good. You're going to vote them out the next time around. Yeah. So, uh, and, you know, and this is not to say that every member of every party would vote in lockstep on every issue. But I can tell you right now, we were talking about how unified the Republicans were in trying to repeal the Affordable Care Act and in passing this horrendous tax bill. If you look at the other side of the aisle. There is not a single piece of legislation drawn from the Democratic Party platform that has anywhere near unanimous support. Medicare for all, 60% of the public approves of it, 64% of the Democrats in the House, but only one-third of the Democrats in the Senate have signed on as co-sponsors. Uh, there is not a single piece of legislation drawn from the Democratic Party platform that could get passed even if the Democrats were in the majority. And why is that, Winston? That is because some Democrats have taken money from corporate interests and other special interests who do not want the things in the Democratic Party platform to be passed into law. 
And why is that? Uh, because uh, corporations don't want full employment. Uh, I'll tell you the most powerful sentence in the Democratic Party platform. I've committed it to memory. Uh, we will build a full employment economy where everyone has a job that pays enough to raise a family and live in dignity with a sense of purpose. That's right out of the Democratic Party platform. Now, there's only one way to do that. You've got to make the federal government the employer of last resort. And how would that work? Uh, just exactly like Franklin Roosevelt's New Deal job programs worked in the 1930s during the Great Depression. Okay, well, if for, you can't for find, those that if, weren't if, around in the 1930s, I understand there you've are been people, here for a while. There were, no, I understand I you've been here for a while. I wasn't around uh, that long uh, ago. Tell the, the viewers, the listening audience. Well, I can tell you how it would work right now. What FDR did, though. Well, it, with FDR, he, had, he never went all the way in. Uh, he tried it. It worked. He kind of sensed that it worked. But it really wasn't until 1944 in his State of the Union address that he fully embraced Keynesian economics uh, instead of just kind of boosting the economy a little bit when it's going down and taxing more to cool it off when it's heating up. Uh, Keynes said that you – the Keynes proposed making the federal government the employer of last resort. You guarantee everyone a job. You have true full employment. And, and then – the private sector hires away people that they need, but you've got to be willing to pay them more than a living wage. Yeah. If, if, uh, if uh, you've got a company, and there are a few corporations around that do this now, who do not pay enough for, for a worker to make ends meet. Right. They get, they're eligible for food stamps and subsidized housing. In other words, the taxpayers are subsidizing Walmart's profits, to name one, and they're far from the only one. Uh, with this sort of plan... Wait, so you're telling me that a corporation like Walmart, the, the largest employer in the nation, or is it the world now? Could be the um, world, and has so many spots on the Forbes list of the wealthiest people. You're telling me that a corporation that has so many uh, rich people, so many people who are on the Forbes list of the richest people... Mm -hmm. Um, are getting tax breaks to In, the point where... Indirect corporate uh, wealth. No, it's not even tax breaks. It's the fact they don't pay their workers a living wage, so the taxpayers subsidize them by making up the difference for their workers by giving them food stamps and other, other benefits. So what you're saying is that Walmart keeps wages so low that they force people to uh, be on food stamps mm -hmm. and, and take state benefits and federal mm -hmm. benefits. And, but, but yet the people who run Walmart would tell you that their people just need to work harder and more hours, right? Yes, absolutely. Oh, so how's that work out? Well, if they work more hours, they become eligible for benefits, and we wouldn't want that. Oh, of course not. You've got to keep uh, them under that 40. Yeah. Or, well, I can tell you that the way, the way it should work is that if you cannot find a job that pays enough to raise a family and live in dignity with a sense of purpose in the private sector, you go to the employment office, not the unemployment office. And you get That's a job. An important distinction. Yes, you get a job and you get a paycheck instead of a welfare check. Now, for our Republican listeners, and I'm sure there will be many, dozens at least, <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, President Reagan proposed replacing welfare with workfare. Uh -huh. If you look at the work that needs to be done right now, the fact that if you understand how, what a big threat the climate crisis poses to the human race, 
we should be moving to clean renewable energy as rapidly as possible. Absolutely. The Democratic Party platform no question. says that this is a World War II scale emergency. I disagree. I think it's bigger than that. Mm-hmm. We should be on 100% renewable energy by mid-century. There are if not faster. Exactly. And there is legislation that has been introduced into the Senate and the House by Democrats that would get that done. Senator Jeff Merkley has introduced the 100 by 50 Act right out of the platform, 100 percent by 2050, Mm mid-century. Tulsi Gabbard, the Democrat from Hawaii in the House, has introduced the the, the Off Fossil Fuels for a Better Future Act that would get us to 100% renewable by 2035. I'm digging that. That's 15 years quicker. Uh, I would like to see us 100% renewable by noon tomorrow. Me too. Noon today. Lots of jobs, (laughs) lots of work to be done. There's other aspects of our infrastructure that need to be modernized and updated and not just patching up why are trains derailing why are bridges collapsing and we don't need to patch up the 20th century and 19th century infrastructure we need to build the 21st century and 22nd century infrastructure exactly and so you know uh how do you pay them well article one section eight of the constitution of the united states says that Congress has the power to coin money and regulate the value thereof. When the housing bubble burst in 2007 and 2008, they did exactly that. The, between the Congress and the Treasury and the Federal Reserve, they put over $13 trillion into bailing out corporations. And we had no inflation. Now, that's not to say you couldn't have inflation if you just pump endless amounts of money into the economy. But you can put quite a – we could have put every worker to work at that point and not had uh, hyperinflation. Um, Instead, we we bailed out corporate interest in Wall Street instead of the American people. When we went into Afghanistan – we're doing that again. Oh, sure. the tax bill. Sure. We're doing that again. Well, we're not bailing them out. We're just giving them more money. We're just giving them. Giving them more money. Giving away the American dream. And here's what a lot of people don't understand. Every sovereign country with its own currency has this power. Uh, The United States is not alone in that. China, uh, and any country that has its own currency has the power to really manage the economy by how much money they put out there and, and who they give it to, how they put it out there. Well, now you're talking like one of those modern monetary theory people. Yes, this, and, and I don't know how modern it is when it goes back to John Maynard right. Keynes. This is the 1930s again in the general theory. Chapter 20, Keynes lays this all out. Mm-hmm. The, the immense power that the government has, full employment is not a problem at all. Yeah. It's only a problem when if you have full employment and you start paying people more than what they need just to get by, they want to buy cars and homes and TV sets and cell phones and whatever. Which would boost and you the may, economy. Yes, and you may have some inflation, but again, as long as everyone has enough to live in dignity with a sense of purpose and raise a family, there's no problem. Exactly. I mean, if, if you have to hold on to your cell phone an extra year or two because the price has gone up a little bit, that's a little different than putting your kid to bed hungry or not being able to go to a doctor or take your child to a doctor when you need to. Mm-hmm. We could absolutely make 
Franklin Roosevelt, and this is, he did finally catch up to Keynes in 1944, State of the Union address, his Economic Bill of Rights, a guaranteed job for every worker, not just food and shelter, but medical care as a right. This isn't Bernie Sanders now. This is a little before Bernie's time. This is Franklin Roosevelt, 1944. Education as a right, not as a means of burying yourself in debt, and Social Security and recreation. Well, that's just it. How are the people at the top going to maintain a debt slavery nation uh, that will be a docile workforce if we have a healthy, educated population? If we just had full employment at a decent wage, then they've got to pay better than that to get people to go to work at McDonald's or Walmart or But wherever. it does not behoove them to, to uh, have a nation of intelligent, uh, healthy people. They're not they, in much danger of that, I don't think. <laughs> I well, taught they, in our public school system for 21 years. They need to uh, be, though. They need well, to, sure. to be building the best people that we can for the next generations to come. As, um, as an aging hippie with a haircut, I can tell you that way back when I was uh, younger probably even than you are now, uh, and you played in a band. The late 1960s, yeah, I was in a band, but I was also a college student. And I can tell you, uh, the whole thing of the 60s, the counterculture, a big part of that was rejecting consumerism and materialism. Uh, and I won't say that any of us have rejected Well, some of us have probably rejected it entirely. I certainly haven't. But I can tell you that money has never been a motivating factor for me. I'm happy and proud to be able to say I've earned a living my whole life doing work that I thoroughly enjoy. Yeah. Go but, back to that, though. Go back to that time um, when people were rejecting uh, capitalism and, and commercialism. And, um, and I what, don't reject capitalism. What was happening? What was happening was people... Or commercialism is what people, Yeah, people were seeing uh, this sort of gray flannel suit mentality. Everyone is expected to be just like everybody else. Yeah. Uh, I was the first student to get kicked out of my high school for my hair being too long. <laughs> uh, it was a very short suspension because my mother intervened, and I did get a haircut. Uh, <laughs> but uh, it was a different time, and, and I really embraced that, and I meant it. I mean, it just felt right to me. And although I've been blessed enough to earn a comfortable living and, and live a comfortable life, but I've never been much of a shopper. Uh, I tend to own my cars for 15 to 20 years instead of two to three uh, just because they're still running fine and I don't need to change it. Uh, but have you seen that Tesla X? I it, have. It can pull a diesel, yes. right? <laughs> yeah, that's going to be the, the wave of the future right Absolutely. there. Absolutely. Uh, but I can just tell you that, you know, corporate influence is not just over our government. Corporate culture surrounds us. We are immersed in it. And just like the frog... You're not in telling the, me it's in our mainstream media. Yeah, it's, uh, the mainstream media is owned by corporations. Uh, Which uh, is exactly the point of doing this podcast, because right. we have to become our own media. Right. They are not going to, to give us a voice, and we're going to have to create one. Exactly. And I, I will tell you this. I wrote a book uh, came out in 2003 about our public education system. And you were talking about an intelligent uh, citizenry. And I've deeply longed for that. 
But I can tell you one of the things that shocked me as I was researching and reflecting on the research as I wrote that book, the opportunity to be well-educated is all around us. It takes a library card Mm -hmm. and a subscription to a few newspapers and magazines. And it takes a curiosity that our public schools often grind out of people. Uh, Curiosity is the natural fuel of learning. And... uh, very few people read books anymore, nonfiction books. That's Very true. few people want to dig in deep and really understand politics, and that's fine. I think the burden upon you and me and everybody else that's running for office, regardless of your party, your philosophy, or anything else, is you do have to realize that it is a minority of the population that is voting it is a minority of that minority that is truly well-educated and well-informed about the issues and about politics in general. I taught civics and economics for 21 years, and I can tell you the vast majority of my students were there for one reason only, compulsory attendance, requirements for graduation. Their goal was to learn as little as possible. I used to start the semester off by talking about the three R's. You know what the three R's are. Reading, writing, arithmetic. Well, it's arithmetic in that scenario. And, and, <laughs> and, and so I would point out, writing begins with a W. Yeah. Arithmetic begins with an A. And then you've got reading. And by the time I spell that out on the board, it says war. And I would explain to my students that there was going to be a war in my classroom that year between me and them. They were going to do everything they could to learn no more than necessary to get the grade they desired. Now, some of them wanted an A, and they would work hard enough to get an A. I came across the phrase early in my teaching career, a good D, which meant the class was required for graduation, but as long as I get a D, I can check that one off. Uh, And they would work hard enough to pass and no harder. There were some students, but very few, One, uh, just before uh, winter vacation, I think we were still calling it Christmas vacation back then, and thank God President Trump has ended the war on Christmas and we can all say Merry Christmas again. Uh, I throw them all out there. Happy Christmas, Hans Aquanica. Yes, I gave my students a reading list of suggested readings for over the break, and they wanted to know, are we going to have a test on this when we come back? Nope. Is there any homework? Nope. Just some books you, you might want to read on, on break. Well, why would we read them? Because you would learn things from reading them. And two or three students came back and said, well, I actually read one of those books. It was pretty good. But most of them said, well, no tests, no homework. I'm not doing that. So the thing is that the same with students as with voters is we have to get them passionate again. And we have to work with what their passion is. Uh, and focusing mostly on students, someone could could be the next Einstein mm-hmm. or be the next Tesla, but they're, they're or the stuck. next Curtis Wilde. Oh well, thank you very much, sir. <laughs> or the next Chrissy Wilde. I'm just trying to be the the first Curtis Wilde. <laughs> <laughs> That's a big job, isn't it? <laughs> it's turning out to be overtime every day, but. Uh, I think that if we start getting people more passionate about what they want to be passionate about, that they can excel at those How do we do that? 
Well, I really think that we have to look into other styles of education, mm -hmm. um, look at other countries where it's working. Mm -hmm. Scandinavian countries uh, have a number of ways that, that they educate. Mm -hmm. um, one of them is unlearning. Uh, my wife and I are homeschooling our daughter, mm -hmm. and we're kind of going along those lines. We let her uh, choose what she would like to learn that day. There you and go. work with her on that. Curiosity. Yeah. Let her curiosity fuel what she's uh, wanting to educate herself in. Yeah. And because curiosity, she shows it, she's passionate about Curiosity it. will only kill the cat if your daughter gets curious about what a cat is like on the inside. I just don't want uh, the cats to get around uh, my daughter while she's curious about how to tie things. Um, we just need to keep those things separately. Um, Let me tell you how we could get people passionate about politics. Okay. Not everybody, but a whole lot more. And again, we're going right Start back winning. to proportional representation and a Democratic Party that actually follows through on its platform when it wins. You know the last Democratic president to really follow through and get some big things done? Who would you say? Lyndon Johnson. Civil oh. Rights Act, Voting Rights Act. Medicaid and Medicare were steps in the right direction. But as the See, I'm a little newer, so my first thought was Obamacare. I know a lot the of people Affordable were Care Act, with that. The Affordable Care Act was a baby step in the right direction. Yeah. But it was written by and for and with tremendous input from the private, for-profit health insurance companies. Exactly. And as long as we have private, for-profit health insurance companies acting as gatekeepers and managing our health care system, they add cost with add, without adding anything in terms of the quality or quantity of care. Now, I said earlier, cost, I'm not... But no value. Exactly. And, and that's I, as easy as it gets for any capitalist. Exactly. I said earlier, <laughs> I'm not opposed to capitalism. In fact, I'm a big believer in self-employment. Uh, I think that we need to do a better job of something else that was in Roosevelt's Economic Bill of Rights. We need to protect small business owners and family farmers from unfair competition. What's another word for unfair competition? Corporations. Yeah. Walmart comes into a small town, and that town square dies. All the little individually owned shops are closed down, and all of a sudden you can get cheaper stuff at the big box Walmart outside, yeah. just outside of town. Yeah. Now, well, when I was pushing for $15 an hour in my mm -hmm. uh, uh, 2016 run, even though if minimum wage would have kept up with productivity and inflation, we'd be at about twenty-one seventy-four an hour right now. Mm -hmm. uh, $15 an hour was a step in the right direction as Absolutely. far as I was concerned. So I was pulling for $15 an hour, and a lot of people would say, well, how are you going to pay for that? How, how is a small business going to pay for that? Well, we're going to have to give the tax breaks to the small businesses mm -hmm. that we're trying to give to large corporations that come in and kill towns you want to and know kill big... mom and pop shops mm -hmm. and, and make sure that small businesses don't thrive and all the people in that town have to work within the Walmart or within whatever conglomerate uh, store it is. And here's where your issues start to overlap. Real... You know the best thing we could do for small businesses? Mm -hmm. Single-payer health care, Medicare for all. Take yeah. that burden off the business owner. Yeah, that you, would be huge. Here's a that quick history lesson. Huge. You know when the idea of employers paying for your health care came into to play? When? During World War II. That we had full employment, wage and price freeze. Uh -huh. The only way that employers could steal employees that they needed away from other businesses, because we had full employment, mm -hmm. was to offer them more money. With the wage and price freeze, you couldn't do that. So they started offering fringe benefits. And one of the biggest one was, we'll pay for health insurance for you. Got it, now, got it. other than that, there is no reason why uh, 
I mean, every other major country, as Bernie has pointed out at least two or three times, uh, has single-payer health care of some sort. It's not socialized, it's not socialized medicine. It's not government-run medicine. With, with Medicare for All or any sort of single-payer, you could go to any doctor or hospital or health care provider you want to go to, but the, the government pays the bill. And remember, this is the government that has the power to coin money and regulate the value thereof. Uh, mm. my, I'm sort of reshaping my and idea. Which hasn't been uh, connected to a gold standard since 72, 73. Uh, yeah, and, and shouldn't be. Yeah. I, I mean... Uh, it, so it's fiat currency. It, it's yeah. been fake, basically. Whatever we decide it is, whatever value we put on it is what money is worth. And here's the killer. If You, you mentioned modern monetary theory earlier, and I am a student of modern monetary theory. I'm learning. And I can tell you, if you understand this properly, first of all, the, the national debt, do you know what the big, one of the biggest components of the national debt is? Okay. Social Security. It's all the money that's been taken out of our checks, and we are entitled to it, by the way. It's our money that they took out of our checks. Oh, but they're going to make entitlement a bad word, but right? It, exactly. But as Al Gore pointed out, there's no lockbox. This isn't a stack of money sitting in a vault or a safe somewhere in Washington, D.C. or Fort Knox or anywhere else. They took the money out, but it's gone. And it's not even that they spent it. It's just that they took it out. And it's just an accounting system. And so, oh, the young people. And I want to put some young people's fear at rest. Social Security is not going to be there for me when I retire. And we, and the Republicans are to blame for this, but the Democrats are to blame for not pointing out that the Republicans are wrong. The government can print money. They're always going to be able to pay any bill they want to pay. This fiasco of raising the debt limit or shutting down the government and all this nonsense. It's all smoke and mirrors. It's, yeah. It's the, a dog pony show. The, the Republicans have been at work for over 40 years trying to cut taxes, which gets them votes. Ramp up military spending. Which also gets them votes. Powerful country. Strong we want to be strong. Yeah. And eventually the national debt gets so high that, oh, we're sorry. But we've, we're gonna have to cut we've got to cut. Systems. Yeah, and food stamps and, and Medicare. Mm -hmm. Sorry. Wrong. They well, can, they can't justify the, the reasons that we're at war. But when they're in office, they pass a tax bill that's going to increase the deficit by $1.5 trillion dollars. Just to give people who already have more money than they know what to do with more money. Mm -hmm. And to give corporations a massive tax break. And most of the corporations have already said they're going to buy back their stock. Now, the only reason, here's the mind-blowing thing with modern monetary theory. The government has the power to print money. They don't need to borrow money. They don't even need to tax except to control for inflation. You put trillions and trillions of dollars out nonstop and never take any of it back in, in taxes or uh, borrowing or anything, up, 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 up. then you're going to have inflation. But, but what if they take all that money and they give no return on investment, as I said? And, and as you just said, their only return on investment is that they spend on the military. Yeah. Um, what was the other... Uh, um, but they give us very little return on right. investment. That's the point. Sure. Um, and so 
Now our roads are, are crumbling, our bridges are falling, we have trains derailing, and they're still trying the same thing over and over again to get the votes. It's not, right. it's not about helping people, it's about power. And, and it is about political decisions. There are social Darwinists among us, and they are in the Republican Party. A social Darwin, you know, Darwin was survival of the fittest. Mm -hmm. And uh, the weak animals are killed off. That's nature. That's nature's plan for the human race. Well, social Darwinism says the government does nothing to help anybody. Doesn't give you a job. Doesn't give you food stamps. Doesn't give you subsidized housing. If you can't make it on your own, tough luck. Maybe charity will pick up the slack. Maybe it won't. A social Darwinist literally does not care if, if government inaction causes people to die. Mm -hmm. That is social Darwinist. Well, and the there, there is, are Republicans in Congress who know that if you kick 26 million people off of health care, people will die. People will die. Yeah, and they don't care. They don't. And why don't they care? Because It's not because of some ideological thing. Well, it is because, an ideological well, well, thing. To a point, but I think that, that a certain amount of money uh, has shaped that ideology. It is the ideology <laughs> that's very common among the wealthy uh -huh. that I'm superior, I've made all this money because I'm smarter and work harder and I'm better than everybody else. Why don't you pick yourself up by your bootstraps, mm -hmm. even if you don't have them because they've been right. taken away right. um, from this, this Your boots are at the pawn store. Your boots are pawn at the shop. pawn shop, but we want you to pull yourself up by those bootstraps, even mm -hmm. though your uh, pawn shop bill is going to go up and your interest is going to continue to increase, and before you know it, it gets out of hand. It, it, there's great danger in, in semi-educated people understanding this, but it's worth the risk, I think. The only reason the government needs to tax is to control for inflation. The problem with the Republican tax bill is not that it's going to add $1.5 trillion to the debt. We added over $13 trillion back in 2009-2010. Uh, the problem is it's going to add to inflation that is happening, it's not happening with you and me. It's not happening among the general population. The stock market is horribly overvalued right now. Mm -hmm. There is a real stock market bubble of the size that led to the stock market crash in 1929 that triggered the Great Depression. Yeah. And this is going to make it worse because when companies buy back their stock, it inflates the value of the stock. And these stock prices are already overinflated. And that's all they're doing it with gave, this extra money is it, stock buybacks. And it gave a smaller tax break to tax-averse billionaires. Now, here's another form of inflation, not a particularly dangerous one. A Leonardo da Vinci painting, one painting, just sold for a new record for a single painting, $454 million wow. for one painting. Wow. Now, you tax... Chrissy Wild, get on top of that market. <laughs> That's my artist over there. You, you tax the rich, you could soak the rich. You could get all the money out of the system that you want. You could get a lot of money out of the system without even taxing most people. You could take the standard deduction up to 200, 300% of the poverty line. Mm -hmm. It's where most people wouldn't even be paying a federal income tax. Take that money from the rich, and what happens? The stock market comes back down to where it ought to be with a reasonable price-earnings ratio. And that Leonardo da Vinci painting, the person who bought it can still buy it. It's going to be $100 million instead of $454 million. But with all the rich people having less money, you can still buy it.
Right. Now, it's a global economy, and that complicates some of this. If we tax rich people and uh, France doesn't, then some French guy is going to have the inside track on getting a half-billion-dollar painting. Mm -hmm. I can live with that. That's true. Uh, but if you really look at it, like a lot of people say, well, if we tax the rich, they'll just go over to other countries. Well, as far as I'm concerned, and let if me know all if the you Waltons agree, want to move, if, I'll help them pack. If, if they want to move, <laughs> I will help them pack. However, if as far as I'm concerned, we need to pass laws that dictate if you offshore the American dream, if you take your profits and, and go to another country and keep all of the the greatness uh, that you're achieving from that in another country and away from the American economy, away from our infrastructure, and away from Americans and, and Americans uh, who are struggling, then as far as I'm concerned, you don't get to do business here. And we need to pass laws that, well, that reflect that. Just tariffs. You bring in the, if you're bringing stuff in from outside... I mean, there's all sorts of ways to, to do the taxes differently than they're done, and there, and there ought to be. And I'll say this. I'm not a big proponent of redistri redistribution, redistribution of income. Wealth, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think that uh, we should have more excise taxes, where the, uh, which are based on the benefits received principle. Airplane tickets, mm -hmm. you should have an excise tax to build the airport, maintain it, pay the air traffic controllers. These cities, including yours and mine, that have these big sports stadiums and arenas and uh, like the Sprint Center in Kansas City, mm -hmm. paid for with sales tax money, where people who can't even afford to park at a Chiefs game, let alone go to the game, are chipping in to pay to build and maintain the, the stadium? Yeah. That's we, just wrong. We were downtown. There was a game going on. $45 parking spaces. Yeah. $45 yeah. parking spaces. Yeah. I, I think that our tickets were from a raffle or something mm -hmm. of that nature, but I'm pretty sure that the parking ticket would have been about as much as the actual mm -hmm. ticket. There's so many improvements we could make, and, and I'll tell you, I probably ought to uh, try to sum this all up, but I think there's, there's, looking good on time. there's three big things we need to take care of. Okay. The Democratic Party candidates, and I was, was very pleased, as you may have noticed, at the DNC meeting in October, October 21st, a resolution that I submitted calling on Democrats in Congress and Democratic candidates for Congress to openly, actively uh, promote and support and work to pass the legislation that's drawn from our platform. Mm -hmm. I want to give one e example. I'll bet that until about two minutes from now, very few people listening to this podcast or watching it will realize that the Democratic Party has had for some time now a plan, a proposal to... That's your that phone. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, I thought I had turned it off. I guess okay. I didn't. Go ahead. Um, the Democratic Party has a plan to repeal and replace the Affordable Care Act. Did you know that? No, I didn't. It's called Medicare for All. Oh, well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, here's the problem. <clears throat> but you're not going to say, I mean, it's going to be tough to sell that to a Republican. We're going to use health, uh, Medicare for All to we can't go there. replace the Obamacare. Now, stop and think about this. President Trump, when he was campaigning and since winning election, has said on numerous occasions that we're going to have a beautiful, marvelous, wonderful uh, health care system that's going to cover everybody with good coverage 
Good, good care at lower costs. Oh, that was candidate Trump. Maybe. No, he said that recently. He said that quite recently. Hmm. When we were talking about repealing the Affordable Care Act, that's where we were going. He said, there's only one way to get everybody covered with good care at lower cost, single payer or Medicare for all. At the very least, a public option. You've got to get the private for-profit health insurance companies out of the role of middleman. Yeah. Now, and that's where the Affordable Care Act failed, mm-hmm. actually, is mm-hmm. most people don't realize that after Obama wrote the Affordable Care Act, uh, it wasn't going to pass unless he basically gave it to the insurance companies to rewrite, mm-hmm. take out the public option, mm-hmm. and then give it back to him. There was, an, uh, there was a, an article in the Kansas City Star when they were debating the Affordable Care Act my jaw dropped when I read it. You don't usually see truth coming out of the mouth of a CEO like this. Uh-huh. The CEO of Blue Cross Blue Shield in Kansas City, while the Affordable Care Act was being debated, said, and I quote, if this bill includes a public option, we are out of business. They can't compete with a public option. So at any rate, right now, John Conyers, no, who they could compete, they just couldn't make the record. Uh, no, they couldn't, they couldn't compete because they couldn't make any profit. Well, isn't that capitalism? The, I mean, in, they, this case, would, in this case, in this case, capitalism compete, could not. But they wouldn't be able to compete on the level that they're operating on now. I don't think they'd even be able to compete. Well, why would they? Uh, <laughs> I mean, if you've got the government paying for everything at cost. And negotiating fair prices. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, there's another component here. Uh, if you want to pay doctors like we pay school teachers, you're not going to have a very good health care system. If you want to pay doctors like we pay doctors, or even better, you'll have even more doctors. The more you pay doctors, the more doctors you're going to have, mm-hmm. and the better the doctors you're going to have. So you need to pay them fairly. I think we ought to pay our school teachers, particularly our adjunct professors at the college level who are out there with the fast food workers working, calling for $15 an hour. Yeah. But I digress. Medicare for all. John Conyers, who recently resigned with the uh, sexual harassment things, to his credit, every session since 2003 has introduced the expanded and improved Medicare for All Act. That would fix our health care problems along the very lines President Trump is talking about. Right now, the current version has 120 co-sponsors, all Democrats. That leaves 73 Democrats who are not co-sponsors. Bernie Sanders just introduced his Medicare for All bill a few months ago. In the Senate, he has 16 co-sponsors, all Democrats. But that leaves 29 Democrats who are not co-sponsors. Now... I'm sure, sorry, that leaves 30 Democrats that are not co-sponsors. What if all 46 Democrats and two independents in the Senate and all 194 Democrats in the House had signed on as co-sponsors? Would we could go to the press and legitimately say, here's our plan to repeal and replace. It meets exactly what President Trump says he wants, full coverage, lower cost, uh, uh, better care, everybody's covered. All you've got to do, President Trump, flip, flip this over, you need to get three Republican senators and 24 Republican House members to go along on this, and you, dear President Trump, would have achieved something. Oh, don't say that dear e- in front of that. <laughs> something <laughs> that eluded, I'm going to butter him up here, 
that eluded one of Franklin Roosevelt, Harry Truman, and every president since then. Our platform says Democrats have been fighting for universal health care for generations. We have since Franklin Roosevelt and Harry Truman. We need to win that fight. We need to win it now. President Trump, I suspect, now I could be wrong, I get the feeling he's got a little bit of an ego. Really? I think so. I, I, I just know. I picked that up. I don't think he's a guy that would ever tweet like, you know, he's a genius. <laughs> I've picked subtle uh, clues or up. Anything of that nature. What if we went to him and said, His President Trump, bigger. you get bigger than Kim Jong-un's, <laughs> not bigger than Curtis Wilde's. That's right. That's right. Uh, he's never seen my button no, video. And let's hope he never does. No, I want to show. Oh, no, okay. never. Wait a minute. Next a podcast. Minute. Not that show. Not this kind of show. Imagine if we could say to President Trump, you get three Republican senators. And, tw- now, and keep in mind, there's a group, a bipartisan group in the House that I believe includes at least 10, maybe more Republican members. I want to say they're up to almost 20. They've got a restriction that has to be equal numbers of Democrats and Republicans. But there's most of your votes right there yeah. because they've already said that if, if, a, if you know, the majority goes along with it, they'll vote with it regardless of party. So you got four or five Republicans in the House and three in the Senate. Come on, President Trump, you can pull that off. And then you, President Trump, will have accomplished something all these other presidents have tried to do and failed. You are the greatest president of all time. It's not just talk. I might we edit get it that done. part out. I, wow, no, it, no, it's no. hard for me to stomach that one. Well, um. think about it, though. <laughs> Let me ask you this then, Curtis Wilde. I'm uh-huh. asking you point blank. If we buttered Trump up that way and got single-payer health care, Medicare for all, could you handle the fact that we'd patted him on the back? Could you handle the fact that he'd get some of the credit? Medicare for all. I really can't handle much about Trump at all. Well, most people can't. As far as looking at him, listening to him. Let me ask you a few other... And I'm not an... Although, I will say that candidate Trump and um, illegitimate President Trump... uh, And I say illegitimate because he Mm -hmm. lost the race, even if he won in the the Electoral College. He lost by Mm -hmm. 3 million votes. So um, Illegal votes. uh, Yes. Unfortunately, that's the second Republican president who has been seated... Two out of the last five. ...by the Electoral College in my lifetime um, that were not... did not win the popular vote. Um, And from a guy who believes that one vote... Uh, one person, one vote mm-hmm. it should be the way of things. And, and a person who believes that we should have automatic voter registration, mm-hmm. um, I don't think that's right. No. I don't think it's right that two people who actually lost were placed in the White House in my life. What if the Democrats helped candidate Trump get legislation passed that treated our veterans better? Would that be all right? Yeah. What if yeah. the Democratic Party helped... President that, Trump. Let me stop you real quick uh-huh. because that's that's where the divide happens. Mm-hmm. Is that a lot of the the Republicans or people on that side of the fence uh, want to support the military, mm-hmm. but they do not want to support the veterans because now they're needy. Now they fall into that category with all these other people right. who who just want a handout right. and who just want welfare. And um, unfortunately, they went and spilled blood for mm-hmm. this country. Mm-hmm. They are true patriots, and for us not to take care of them is absolutely appalling. And what if the Democrats, picking up on President Trump talking about taxing hedge fund managers at the same rate as everybody else, 
united behind that idea. The Democratic Party platform is kind of scattered on taxes, but you put it all together, it comes down to having the rich pay their fair share, have corporations pay their fair share, and lowering the burden on everybody else. Now, Trump's not going to sign that. We're going to have to get a Democratic president to get that. But maybe we at least get the hedge fund managers. And, you know, if, if, uh, if we... Uh, Take him up on, on the problem with that is that when you say fair share to them, mm-hmm. they think their fair share should be more than everyone else. A dollar fifty. <laughs> they think that it, that people um, well who did not have the opportunities that they did right. coming up uh, just misstepped and made mistakes that they never would have made, um, mm-hmm. and that's why they're in the great position that they're in. Unfortunately, everyone's life is different, and everyone's um, uh, life takes a different toll mm-hmm. and a different path. And they don't see that. President Trump got a lot of votes talking about bringing back good-paying jobs <coughs> and keeping good-paying jobs from going overseas. I'd like to test President Trump by every Democrat uniting behind a bill that makes the federal government the employer of last resort. You know, one year after Roosevelt mentioned his Economic Bill of Rights, a bill was introduced in Congress called the Full Employment Act of 1945. That bill included exactly what I'm talking about, exactly what the Democratic Party platform hints at, a guaranteed job at a living wage Mm -hmm. for every worker. That provision got negotiated out before it was finally passed in 1946 as not the Full Employment Act, but the Employment Act of 1946, which said we should strive for full employment didn't define it. And since then, we've now defined full employment as an unemployment rate of less than 6%. Really? Well, tell that to the one out of every 20 workers who's unemployed. Right. That's not full employment. Right. So, or less than employed. Exactly. Right. You know, or overly employed but underemployed at the same time, working three jobs to try to make ends meet mm-hmm. and still not quite making ends meet. Well, that meet. goes back to the prison industrial complex. That yeah. goes back to uh, taking the, the fathers or the mothers out of the homes for mostly uh, nonviolent crimes. A majority of people in prison are there for nonviolent crimes. Uh, they were taken out of their homes, and now you've got a single parent trying to keep two or three jobs to keep a roof over the head mm-hmm. of two or three children, and they can only do so much by themselves. And now mm-hmm. those two or three children are, are uh, in a situation where their parents may not be there. Uh, they don't have supervision and, uh, uh, you know, person to look up to, role model. Right. Uh, that's the word I was looking for. They don't have the role mm-hmm. model that they should. And then they go out and they, they do things that they shouldn't. Mm-hmm. They seek out crime or seek out things that will get them in trouble. Because trouble, as you, when you're a kid, exactly. you want to do things that get you in trouble. You want to mm-hmm. do things you're not supposed to. Uh, drinking was never so much fun. <laughs> drinking alcohol was never so much fun as when I did it before 21. <laughs> because after 21, I wasn't breaking but the you, law anymore. you, by definition, are a wild person. That, that's true. You're a that's wild true. man. Not only by name, but by definition. But, but what you just mentioned, stop and think about the impact, the enormous positive impact of making the federal government the employer of last resort. Crime, drug and alcohol abuse, gambling, all sorts of things. A lot of people's lives are damaged when they can't achieve that basic being able to support yourself yeah. and raise a family. Yeah. A lot of, look at the people who are committing these mass murders, uh, going in and just shooting up strangers, almost always are young men 
who are not able to raise a family because they don't have the financial ability to do that. Right. Take that away. They didn't have every, the springboard. Every worker has a guaranteed job that pays enough to raise a family and live in dignity with a sense of purpose. I think that it would solves be hard. so many other problems. I think it would be hard for most people to argue that because, well, unless they're anti-government. Mm-hmm. Um, but the fact is the government is comprised of people, people that we vote into office. We change the people. Right. We change the government. It's right. just that simple. Exactly. Um, but the and, fact and we've got a chance to change the people this year. We do. We do. November. And it's going to happen. <laughs> We're both running. Um, and that's definitely going to happen. But the thing is, is that it's going to be a tough sell uh, to certain conservatives, certain Republicans, anti-government people mm-hmm. to say the government is the employment of last resort. But it's going to be tough for them to argue and say, no, we don't think people should work. Mm-hmm. Well, you bring Reagan into it, <laughs> replace welfare with workfare. Yeah. But um, I think in this election, it is critical that in the primaries, we identify the Democrats who have been corrupted by corporate money and will not support legislation drawn from the platform, and that they are challenged by Democratic candidates who pledge and will follow up on that promise Mm -hmm. to support legislation drawn from the platform. And I will be interviewing some of those people. Mm -hmm. I I don't want to lean, I'm not going to try to do any favoritism on this show. Mm -hmm. I want to give it, I want to make sure that this is a sounding board Mm -hmm. um, for for all progressives that want to reach out and be the next generation Mm -hmm. of Democrats Mm -hmm. uh, and want to make positive change for all of the United States. Um, but I am planning on having some of the, the opposition, as mm-hmm. we would call sure. it, uh, on, and I am going to invite for both sides of the spectrum. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, if one side of that doesn't want to come on the show, the other side is going to get the sounding board that I'm able to provide. Well, there is, there is no real far left in this country. What We think the right has moved so far right that the left must be far left. The Democratic Party may be slightly left of center. We certainly are not afraid for government to play a role. Ronald Reagan took us down a very dark road with his famous comment that government is not the solution, government is the problem. I disagree. I think he was half right, but only half right. I think that bad... You got to look at the time frames and see what was going on. Well, I, I just think that, bad, that the Republicans want to cast government as part of the problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's, that's what makes you right-wing, is you want the government the to be small enough that Grover Norquist can drown it in his bathtub. The conservative uh, line is that they want a smaller government. So that we're seeing that a lot now in, in the news. Every day we're seeing them try to defund certain aspects sure. of the government. Make or sure privatize certain, it. Or privatize yes. it. Make sure that they're not working correctly for right. the American people. And then people lose, and it, and lose their faith in the system. It's easy And before for you know it, they don't want to vote anymore. You put and people, people in, in power stay in power. You put people in charge of departments who have been against the department forever and want to go in there and tear it up and tear it down. It's so much easier to tear something down than it is to build something good up. But here's my corollary. This is my version of Reagan's comment. Bad government is the problem and good government is the solution. Agreed. And good government, I go to Aristotle's definition. Doesn't matter how many people vote. Doesn't matter how many people share power. A good government, a bad government, let's start with, 
only looks out for the people in power. Aristotle's definition of a good government was a government, whether it's one person, a king or a dictator, whatever you want to call them, or an aristocracy or an oligarchy. He had a good and a bad term for everything. But it's a government that looks out for the common interest. From the preamble to the Constitution, a government that promotes the general welfare, welfare yeah. that does what's best for the most people, mm -hmm. does the most good for the most people. We can do that. Good government is not easy. People, but it's necessary. There's a lot of people with power and money who don't want good government. That's true. That's true. And we're fighting those people. There's been a civil war raging in this country, a class war, since at least 1971 when Lewis Powell issued his famous memorandum that literally said, we've got to start fighting all these liberal college professors and the Democrats and all these people who want the government to do good things. Uh, he didn't use that language. But, um, to paraphrase. But this is it. That's what he said. I mean, this is it. They went to work at that point to make sure that the right-wing, non-government, uh, market-will-solve-everything philosophy emerged dominant. And it has. The Democrats play by Republican rules. And instead of making our own rules and doing our own in, things. Instead of making a set of fair rules that give every view a fair opportunity to be expressed and examined. Well, you, so. you mentioned how far the right has went, and, and people say uh, that the left is, is extreme, except the fact is, is that every time the left has moved towards the center, the right has moved further right. I think the, the left, left moves more towards the center. I think the, the right moves further right. And I think the left it, is the center. And before you know point. it, the left is the center. The we left are. becomes the center. Um, and in order to actually have a left, we're going to have to push really hard left in order to find that balance. Let me, let me tell you where the balance is. Far too far. If you look at where the Much right wing, if you look where the right wing is in this country right now, it is unabashedly anti government. We want to privatize our schools. We want to privatize Social Security. We want the, the government to have as little to do as possible with anything. The equivalent of that on the left is Karl Marx and Lenin and Stalin. It is no private business. The government owns everything, and everybody works for the government. That's communism. That's the opposite of extreme capitalism, which is what we've got. There's a middle ground. There's got to and be the a middle, middle ground. And the middle ground is, yes, corporations have a role to play. Modern life would be impossible without corporations. Mm -hmm. And I like modern life. Yeah. Uh, you know, but... There's a balance there, and we are very much out of balance right now. The government is and serving the... And once we the find that balance, we can use that to propel ourselves forward into the next generation, into a better future for all mankind. I don't think people realize that. And what that comes down to is enough candidates getting elected who will actually implement what's in the Democratic Party platform. If you look at the Democratic Party platform, and I, you know, I just look at the main components that have that affect the most people and would help the most people. Full employment at a living wage, health care when you need it, and a genuinely democratic government. Proportional representation, ranked choice voting. Uh, Automatic re voter registration. Re repealing the idea that corporations are people. Absolutely. And that you can, they absolutely should be banned from spending any money. Here on Next Gen Dems, corporations are not people and money is not speech. There you go. That's how it is. So, you know, we've got a real fight on our hands, and we need to win that fight, and we need to win it now. The climate crisis is serious. 
We are endangering future generations by our inactivity. We're moving in the right direction, but far too slow. Uh, the biggest we disappointment. We were moving in the right direction. Now there's been a whole lot of rollback on that. Yes, but it's still at the state and local level, and in many other countries, China's really emerged as a leader on the climate crisis. Isn't now. that crazy? They filled the void that Trump left there for them. <laughs> um, I'll because just say they're, there's still areas where people are walking around with face masks. Yes, uh, because the the oxygen yeah. is so damaged there. Yeah, the air is so damaged. So I hope that this year, that all the people who have come to dislike the Democratic Party, and there are numerous reasons why that's justifiable, need to realize that until we get proportional representation and ranked choice voting, there are only two parties to choose from. Now, I'm a Democrat. Me too. I want the Democratic Party to be the party DNC it claims. represent? Yes. I want the Democratic Party to be the party it claims to be. But even right now, and even if the Democratic Party totally becomes the party it claims to be, a true party of the people... Voters want more than two parties to choose from, and the, the Republicans aren't going to help them get there. Well, the thing that I tell a lot of people who um, were, were part of the Dem exit, um, because I, most people know that I'm the unofficial official national spokesperson for uh, the Dem Enter movement, mm-hmm. uh, just because I did it, and mm-hmm. I did it on every level uh-huh. within the Democratic Party and proved it could be done. So I, I kind of became a poster child for that. Um, but the same people who dim exited will say that the Democratic Party is done. The Democratic Party is over with. Um, we need more parties. But they don't understand. Right now, there are two games in town. There are two, two teams on the field. Mm-hmm. And if you don't get on one of those teams, you don't get on the you're field. You're not in the game. You're either watching from yeah. the sidelines. Yeah. Uh, you're either throwing stones at the building right. as you're screaming uh, in the parking lot. But where you're not is in the game. And if you don't get in the game, you can't make any plays. So if you don't get involved, then you're not going to get things done. It's far more difficult for corporate interests to to corrupt and control the system if there are more than two parties. That's and they only have to control a handful of Democrats to keep the Democratic Party platform from being implemented. So I am a huge. Why is it tough? Um, It is tough. If there's more parties, well, you can't. You have more people. You have to corrupt. There, there's that. There's I mean, definitely the, that. The, the Green Party right now but is... There's also, it's also because there's more voices at the table. Well, uh, sure. And, um, sure, more choices. Yeah, and, and to me, it's not about... And I know that proportional is more about party versus party. Mm-hmm. Uh, ends up being that way. But I but think within it each should party, be about people. Within each party, then the platform people becomes... People and policy and yeah. platform. This is where we've gone most horribly wrong in this country. Party platforms are supposed to mean something. Mm-hmm. People don't read them. There's little reason why they should. They're not going to happen. They don't follow they're, they, they're, you know, but they should. Mm-hmm. People c- should read them. They should care. As Democrats, we need to make it easy for people to understand what's in our platform. We need to pick out the most important issues. And this is something with progressives looking in the mirror, criticism here that I think we need to take to heart. Mm-hmm. When you've got hundreds of different groups... And everyone is so quick to say, well, I agree with you on 99 issues out of 100, but I disagree with you on this one. I'm done with you. And I've seen this over and over and over again. We can't afford that. We can't afford to be divided that easily, to be turned against one another that easily. But the thing is, is that the people who are going to work against us 
know that we can be divided that easily. Oh, and divide and conquer has worked for them. They will literally pay we people need, to divide us. And we need to get better at dividing them. Yeah. Let me tell yeah. you something. And uniting us at the same time. Sure, absolutely. Read, uh, if you haven't read What's the Matter with Kansas, great book written by a guy who lived right across the, the Kansas line from me in the Kansas City I think City I read area. some e- excerpts from it. Basically, it's very simple. The Republicans use wedge issues to get the votes they need, and then they go about the business of getting corporations taken care of. But they are anti-abortion, anti-gay rights, anti-immigrant, anti-gun control, anti-government, anti-refugee. They get all the votes there. But I don't care, you know... What you're against, if you're anti-abortion, what does that have to do with repealing the Affordable Care Act and giving a $1.5 trillion tax cut to rich people? There's no, there's no, no reason you should vote for people doing that. If you're against abortion, then vote for someone who's against abortion but won't give a trillion and a half dollar tax cut and won't try to take your health insurance. Well, in order for that to happen, we're going to have a more educated, we're going to have to have a more educated voter uh, population. We just have to have enough voters who know what's really going on Mm -hmm. that we get 50.1% of the votes in one election after another. And that, but that's it. I will uh, leave you with this final thought. Uh, oh, we're not quite done yet. We've got oh, something else after that, but go ahead. Okay. I need to hit the road here pretty quick because it's totally getting, getting late and I've got a four-hour drive ahead of me. Uh, but uh, strange advice, uh, good advice coming from a strange source. Governor Chris Christie, former Governor Chris Christie, thank goodness for the people of New Jersey, it's former governor, talking to his fellow Republicans, but this applies to progressives, this applies to the Democratic Party. Mm-hmm. He said... If we want our ideas to matter, we have to win, talking about elections. Because if we don't win, we don't govern. And if we don't govern, all we do is shout into the wind. Now, you mentioned marches and rallies earlier when we were talking. I love a good march. I love a good rally. And I'm all in favor of having a bunch of them. I hope they're happy, positive, celebratory affairs that say, we're coming we're, we're out in the streets now. We're going to have a political revolution. Yeah. We're going to take the next big step forward in the American revolution by moving to genuine democracy and full employment and health care for all. Uh, and well, we what celebrate I said, that. just to touch on it for our, our audience, because we were talking about that before we went live with this, is, um, uh, you know, I mentioned at a lot of meetings, uh, if we want people to rally around us, we have to have rallies. If we want people to walk with us, we have to not only walk and knock doors, but we have to march. And we have to give people ways to get involved. And it seems there's to a, kind of fall on deaf ears of a lot of people who want to continue uh, doing business as usual and continue to operate the way that they have for the last 10 years. Uh, 10 years that we've been losing let me, let me over 1,000 elections. Let me throw a twist on your march thing here. There's a, a lyric from one of my songs. We're all taken to the streets, but we ain't marching. We're just going for a walk with all our friends. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's, that's the mentality. So you got one more big thing and then... Uh, then yeah, um, I was kind of hoping for the exclusive. You, well, you have a big thing. You've you're gonna, got a huge you're announcement gonna, that you haven't quite made public yet, right? And I'm going to make it in a way that may disappoint you, but only slightly. Okay. I'm going to say that I have decided that I am 99.94% certain 
that I am going to run for the Democratic nomination in the 6th Congressional District. Now, I say 99.94. I've come up with that very precise number for a reason. Between November of 2012 and December of 2013, if you look at all of the climate science studies that were done, 99.94% of the scientists say global warming's happening and we're contributing. Mm-hmm. And they're certain that they're 90, 99.94% of them are certain. I'm equally certain that I'm going to run for the Democratic nomination. So what you're saying in a strange roundabout way is that if you don't run, you're a climate change denier. Oh, my goodness. I hadn't <laughs> thought of it that way. You've nailed me down. I have. Uh, so, I'm saying it's so, extremely unlikely that I won't run. So you are are going public with the announcement right here and now Certainly. that you are running. Uh, I can't think of a better person to, to share my near certainty I, with. I appreciate that. <laughs> I appreciate that. Who will you be running against? There are two other Democrats in the race, and then Sam Graves, the Republican, is the incumbent. Okay. And I want to say that from the beginning, I'm not running against anybody. I am running in support of the Democratic Party platform, and uh, totally 100 percent. No, 99.94. 100% against what the Republicans are doing. And I want to give the voters of the 6th Congressional District a chance to replace a Republican with a Democrat who absolutely believes in our platform and all the wonderful things that will happen for our country and the world if Democrats who will support our platform are in the majority. Tell the, the listeners a little bit about Sam Graves before we get out of here. I, I don't think there's anything more. I'm not going to run against Sam Graves. Uh, I'm going to run against the Republican Party, and he votes with the party 100% of the time. Excellent. Excellent. So, well, people can go out there and look up Sam Graves and see exactly why Winston Apple is 99.94% sure that he is going to run against him and unseat him in 2018. Uh, I'm sure that's your intention. Absolutely. And, and I know that. Who, who are the other Democrats running in, for that seat? Henry Martin and Jacques Cherry. Henry we'll Martin, a, Jacques Cherry. We'll I'm have throwing a cherry it out there. and an If you'd apple. like to be on the show, talk about where you stand on the issues. Uh, I want to be Sam as, as inclusive as possible. And, and have Sam on. Sam, you are welcome to come on <laughs> Next Gen Dems, where we talk about the next generation of Democrats. Uh, You are more than welcome to come on, sir. I am completely inclusive, and I want to allow as many people out there to draw uh, conclusions that are educated and um, uh, in the know of where the candidates stand on all the issues. Maybe Sam and I could come on and debate. I, I would absolutely love that. <laughs> if you can arrange it, the, yeah. uh, oh, the it's open. I'm, you see how mobile we can be. Yeah. Uh, it took me about 20 minutes to get all this set up here. Yeah. Uh, well, thanks for having me. I feel Winston honored to be Winston Apple, fellow DNC member, and now... DNC uh, in the house. Yeah, DNC in the house. <laughs> and now, and that's why I thought it was important to have you as one of the first guests, is, is because we kind of came into this together. We were with my wrestling. It took me across the state a few times, so it felt like you, myself, and Corey Bush... Mm-hmm. We're kind of campaigning together in 2016. Yeah. Um, so we, we all formed a friendship. And I'm going to have Corey on at some point. And, and, and I think it's important for people to know, and hopefully this conversation tonight will give them some inkling of that. The DNC is 447 people. And as you said a couple of times, you change the people, you change the organization. Exactly right. We were both elected as a result of being involved in Bernie's campaign in June of 2016. We weren't in there conspiring to, to against Bernie. We were part of Bernie's campaign. 
Uh, I know that's what led me to be asked to run for lieutenant governor. And if I hadn't run for lieutenant governor, I wouldn't have been elected to the DNC. It was a Bernie supporter in Springfield who, after some of them talked about it, called me up and said, would you think about running for the DNC? Cool. So that's, that was my uh, consolation prize, and it's been a good one. But the DNC, the state committee, are very dysfunctional organizations right now. They're not going to be a lot of help. It's going to come down to the candidates. Well, I, I think that they've seen some of their mistakes. I don't think that they're acting upon them quickly enough. No. Um, but I think that they've seen some of their mistakes. And I've I got to throw kudos out. I know you ran against mm-hmm. Stephen Weber mm-hmm. um, for, for the chair position. And I personally think that he's doing a great job. Yeah. Um, they, they've done a lot of hiring within the state party. Mm-hmm. A lot of great staff has been hired. The staff's and about three times as big yeah, as it was and before. The la- the uh, state party that was operational when we were elected mm-hmm. into the DNC is not the same state party no. that there is now, and they are, are doing a very good job of really building uh, a democratic uh, wave and mm-hmm. trying to get the word out there of how we are working for the people, why we are working for the people, what we are doing. Mm-hmm. Um, they've really reached a lot of areas in Missouri, um, so I want to give kudos to them at the, the state party. Um, I, I think that you would have done a great job, but if you would have done oh. that, you would. Well, keep in mind running. that I didn't really run. I kept saying, "What's <laughs> Light, the job description? What, what's the job description? Do you want someone to be on the phone raising money? I'm not the guy. Right. If you want someone to try to get a Bernie-style grassroots movement going in Missouri, I'd be happy to do it. Yeah. But I never got an answer to that question, and I probably shouldn't have allowed my name to be put in the nomination. If I had it to do over again, I would have withdrawn. But I felt there needed Hindsight's to be Hindsight's always twenty twenty, though, right? Yeah. Well, not uh, always. The Republicans <laughs> don't have twenty twenty right? hindsight. No, they just blindly uh, ignore things. But I, I will, I will just say that the the key thing is not even just getting Democrats elected; it's getting Democrats elected who truly support the platform yeah. and have not been corrupted by special interest money, and who are truly willing to put people before profit, Main exactly. Street before Wall Street, and America first. In the primary elections this year, voters have got to figure out if there. I'll tell you what I thought. This thought came to me on the driving to St. Louis today, that we need a true political revolutionary. In every race, I agree. Uh, at, at least in the primaries, the voters have to have a choice between a Democrat who does not support the party platform, truly support it, and one who does. And let's hope the one who does gets nominated, and let's hope that those Democrats defeat the Republicans in the fall. And we can start moving towards genuine democracy and good government. Well, I know that uh, a lot of the the seats that weren't uh, opposed last year, mm-hmm. or that went unopposed last yeah, year. I think we're up to 115 um, candidates now. Yeah, which is yeah, more we're than we coming have. right along. We have so. more candidates already running this time yeah. than we did. And the filing uh, period doesn't even open right. until February 27th. Exactly, so. exactly. That's the first day of filing. Yeah. And I'll see you in Jeff City All because right. you're going to be filing for congressional 99.94. Uh, Pretty for good con- chance you'll see me there that day. Missouri House congressional seat. Uh, Six uh-huh. against Sam Graves, and I will be running once again in Missouri House District 107 against my arch nemesis and the GOP <laughs> golden boy, uh, Nick Schroer. So right. 
I am looking forward to my race. I hope you're looking forward to oh, your race. Oh, very much. Very and, much. And hopefully, it's going to be a great year. Hopefully the people in Missouri are ready to turn this thing blue because it's way past time. Absolutely. We've seen what red can do. Absolutely. And now it's time to see what blue will do. Absolutely. That's exactly right. Winston Apple, thank you so much for thank coming you. on, sir. Best of luck in your race. And thank you for being a guest on Next Gen Dems. All right. We are right here at Rendezvous Cafe on this one. You can come to 217 South Main Street. O'Fallon, Missouri, or call them at 636-281-CAFE and find out how you can come up here and experience some of the live music, some of the wonderful food. They've got uh, great uh, artichoke um, dip, and you can check that out. And they've also got a great event space here. So come on up. uh, Check out Rendezvous Cafe. I'd like to thank them for being a host of this episode of Next Gen Dems. And I'm Curtis Wilde. Signing out.